Well, good morning, everyone here and, and everywhere else. <clears throat> so, as is the habit, typically, um, we can turn that down a little bit. Uh, we, uh, I will start my sermon on Mondays, and some Mondays I'll all but complete the exegetical work and might even get to some of the uh, packaging of it. And this Monday, particularly, I was able to do most of that. So, I kind of forgot about the sermon. and. Um, but to be quite frank, I, uh, you know, I, I remember going into the sermon thinking, oh man, I mean, yeah, I'm going to follow the book of Matthew here, but uh, this seems to be a lackluster kind of a topic here, fasting. And um, anyway, fast forward to this morning, which is a typical schedule. I get up a little bit earlier on Sundays and we'll always take the sermon that sometimes I haven't looked at since last Monday, which in this case was true. And, um, you know, but it was done for the most part and, you know, you make some revisions and You've been soaking on it all week, which is why I try to get it done early as I can, so you get to soak on it. And, um, and right as I finished the last revision, I get a ding, you know, my message. And this ding was from someone that many of you know and love, Tolliver Wills. And uh, we, we, we correspond quite often together with Kevin and others. For those who don't know, uh, we've had three full-time assistants here over the years, and uh, that have since left, um, Tom Morrison, and of course, Tolliver Wills, and uh, Kevin, um, you know, Kevin, <laughs> Kevin Nelson. And um, anyway, Tolliver, for you to know, he's an African-American who was a pastor here for about 10 years. Now he's the Center City Church down at the Ponts in downtown Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, we, again, we correspond quite often. Well, he, he, he bumped me this, this word of encouragement, and um, I want to read it to you. Just to encourage you, but particularly in this season when there's so much chaos and so much, you know, around, um, just so you know that, you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing to be a part of the body of Christ and just be encouraged. And so I want to read this. He said, quote, as I am finishing up my sermon preparation on Nehemiah 3, not the most exciting text on the face of it. He said, <laughs> we kind of laughed at each other of that. I am reminded of now how the Lord has graciously used CPC to help all people to be involved in the building of Christ's temple and kingdom presence. The gospel is mighty at work through you all, and I can only hope that we in Atlanta can continue that long legacy of gospel restoration ministry. Thankful for y'all, you know the y'all, that's, he's, he's down south, and proud to say that you are truly my spiritual home if there is such a thing. Praying for you as you prepare to participate in the mediation of Christ. God bless. I then write back, brother, you are such an encouragement. And I say some words about him and what's going on. And, and then um, the last words he gives is, well, go get him. And I said, yep, laugh out loud. Yep, you as well. Game day. What an amazing experience. You know, two pastors, you know, just right there at the moment of walking out the door. And I just thought y'all be encouraged. You know, nothing, no message here, but just... Just, you know, God is good, life is continuing, uh, the gospel's being preached all around the world. And of course, I ask that because we enter into a pretty chaotic um, a week. I know we all are aware of that. And we come to a passage on fasting. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. What does this have to do with anything? I mean, what do you think about fasting? Do you fast? Many today are calling for prayer and fasting with a sense of urgency. 
regarding what's happening in the world around us, whether it be our country during a time of chaotic elections or related to COVID, related to racism, misogyny, economic uncertainty, the list can go on. What are we expecting if and when we fast? And does it fit into the biblical understanding? Now, I need to tell you, today we come to a passage wherein Christ is questioned about his and his disciples not fasting. And Christ's answer might surprise you and all of us, which then will beg the question, have we missed something about the Christian faith and the gospel itself that is greater than even the issue of fasting itself? What was the true meaning of fasting in Scripture? And how does it impact our perspective about the present day's relative to God's view of history and where we are in to that history as God understands that history. In other words, how do we understand fasting and Christ's response to it relative to the relevance of our current history and circumstances that we experience around us today? That's the question that I want us to address today. And as you'll see, it's going to take us into a study that requires, as it always does, to read especially the Gospels. Remember, 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 the Gospels are written under the Old Testament. He is preparing us for the new. But it's written under the Old Testament where the assumption was that that the things which were said and talked about were context in the Old Testament. And of course, Christ, you see if I'm listening to the passage where I'm going with this, there's an old and new wineskin that he talks about and how that would change our lives. And so let's pray and let's go into this, but I think you're going to be uh, amazed at absolutely how perfectly relevant this passage is, as if God dropped it out of heaven for us today, this week, we need to hear this message from God. Let's pray. So, Father, come and speak to us boldly and powerfully and graciously and mercifully. Help us, Father, your people who are oh, so prone to get lost in our, what we see by sight and so lost in the circumstances. And we just go wayward with every wind of doctrine flouting about. And, God, we are your sheep. We are weak. We need you, our shepherd to firmly and lovingly take your rod and steer us to the way of truth and grace. Please come do that to your people, us, even now. We want you. Shepherd us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, of course, the passage begins with a question. I'll read it again. The disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Now, John's disciples here want to know what's going on here. Obviously, there's a problem with Jesus, and he doesn't seem to be, well, kind of practicing the religion of John the Baptist, which is accredited with being very consistent with the religion of of the Jews and, and of the biblical Judaism. What was the significance of fasting then in the Old Testament, such that this was considered an important issue of that day, such that they would question our Lord about it? 
And how does Christ's answer resolve the issue given this Old Testament context? I want you to keep in mind as I go forward pretty quickly here, one, I think a good sermon is an argument. It's rhetorical in nature. I'm sorry, but that's what it should be. I'm going to build an argument looking at what is going on in the mind of our Lord in the context of the Old and New Testament. And there's two issues. The first is more the surface issue, the issue of fasting itself. But the second is really the issue. It's the issue that is being proposed by the issue of fasting in this text, according to Matthew. It's the issue of historical relevance relative to our place today as the church of Jesus Christ, our presence today in redemptive history and how that affects our perspective is related then to how we live and act in this present time period amidst our current circumstances. I can't say this enough. Oh, that God would give you and me his bird's eye view of history. How that should interpret our emotions, our expectations, our duties and ethics, what we do, what we say. Please, please pray God to open our eyes to hear what Jesus teaches us today. And so with that, let's look at the issue of fasting. And again, relatively briefly, but trying to get you back into the world of Jesus and what he was saying. In general... The Old Testament practice and meaning of fasting was consistently throughout the Old Testament a season of mourning. Mourning. Second Samuel, they mourned and wept and fasted until evening, and it goes on to the story. That is a very consistent contextual uh, introduction to fasting in the Old Testament. 1 Kings 21, when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth over his bare flesh and he fasted and he lay in the sackcloth and went about dejectedly. It's a grieving moment. It's a mourning moment. According to one definition in what we, what's described as the theological word book of the Old Testament, it's quoted, fasting is depriving the body of nourishment as a sign that one is experiencing great sorrow. This morning with respect to repentance, therefore, when someone is experiencing the sorrow of sin, it becomes a liturgy of repentance in the Old Testament. Judges 20, for instance, then all the Israelites and the whole army went back to Bethel and wept and sitting there before the Lord, they fasted that day until evening. And then they offered burnt offerings and sacrifices of well-being before the Lord. That's an Old Testament liturgy of confession and faith, confession and absolution, utilizing the sacrificial system by which they put the blood of the sacrifice as substitute for their blood in repentance and faith. It's a respect to a petition to the Lord. Second Samuel, then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while it was alive, but when the child died, you rose and ate food. Now listen to this passage, by the way. It anticipates Christ's answer. This, of course, is David. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. The fasting was kept to the season of mourning and repentance and faith. 
And so it was instituted by the word of God in that way, consistently fasting. It's not a 18-6 fasting diet. Let's put it that way. It's truly meant to be a liturgy of, of mourning and lament and repentance unto faith. So that raises the second issue of the history relevant to our place in redemptive history. How did God understand fasting now as we transition to this gospel passage particularly? And to help you understand that, I want you to hear the prophets. Again, the prophets as they foresaw the coming of the day of the Lord. Remember, the day of the Lord is, is a day of great rejoicing for those who are being saved, but for those who are unrepentant, it's a day of horrible wrath. And so Joel, foreseeing the coming of the day of the Lord, he exhorted the people to fast so as to express deep mourning and regret over their sins, if perhaps God would postpone this great day of the Lord. Joel 1 says, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land of the house of the Lord, your God, and cry out to the Lord. Why does Joel say this? Verse 15, right after that verse 14, for behold, the day, for the day of the Lord is near and destruction from the almighty, it's coming. Do you feel the fast here? and what it was meant to convey and to do and to accomplish. Destruction is coming. Fast, lament your sin. Joel 2.11 goes on, truly the day of the Lord is great, terrible indeed. Who can endure it? I wanna stop there just for a moment because sometimes we forget that in God's perspective of history, it's a history, it's a history of sin, rebellion against God, of the opportunity to repent, to confess your sins, to put your hope and faith in God yet again, to be your merciful God, your life-giving God, to put yourself under his lordship in a way as to be saved, to let God save you by the same sacrifice that saved Adam and Eve in the slaying of an animal and the new coat of identity that he gave to them and the flesh of the animal sacrificed. A same sacrifice that Cain did not make, but Abel did, which cursed Cain and blessed Abel. And off we go through redemptive history. It's this kind of a fast that would lead then to repentance and faith that you might be covered by the blood of the Lord. But the Bible never shrinks back from reminding us that for those who are not part of that legacy and part of that line, you wait a very horrible, massive, total justice. He goes on, yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, you hear it? With fasting, with weeping, with mourning, rend your hearts and not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He relents from punishing. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent towards you. Blow the trumpet, Zion. Sanctify the fast. Call a solemn assembly. Joel envisioned a terrible day. 
And of course, according to the liturgy of Old Testament confession and faith, he called for a fast to repent. He says, stop all this joyous occasions, Joel will go on. Stop all your joyous occasions and mourn for sin and repentance. And guess what? The example he gives is like a wedding. You did hear Jesus' answer, right? Yeah, he's reading the Old Testament. He calls for the example of a wedding. Joel 16, 7, let the bridegroom leave his room, that, the room of the ceremony and the rejoicing, the celebration. Let the bridegroom leave the wedding, if you will. Let the priest, the minister of the Lord, weep, not rejoice. This plays into Zechariah's prophecy. Last one, I promise, from the Old Testament. Hold on. Zechariah picks this theme up. Fasting is reversed, though, in Zechariah's vision. In Zechariah's vision now, he gets to the other side of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord where mercy and grace is revealed to those who have fasted and mourned. He says it this way, Zechariah 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall now be turned to seasons of joy and gladness. You heard it read this morning. That is to say that when the Lord brings final salvation to his people, the calendar of fast will be turned into a calendar of feasts. Let that sink in. That's history as God envisions it. A history that's redemptive in nature sees a history of mourning to feasting for those who would fast unto repentance and be absolved from their sins unto feasting. <laughs> I mean, the Lord is just so patient with us. I mean, if we would just read it and slow down and get rid of all this stuff that's out there just pointing you to these little proof text kind of readings. He just went overboard actually with real history, just literally carving a path for you and me to be brought to something like this. Who, who can fault God? I mean, he went to extremes, thousands of years of providential history writ the word of God writ and the actions of history itself throughout the Old Testament, just carving us and directing us like a tutor to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here we see it in Zechariah. Remember what Jesus said about the wedding guest. Remember what he said about this fasting. Zechariah, I'll keep going. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoke me to wrath by their obviously rebellion and rejection of God as Lord. He says, for I purpose to bring disease to you when your fathers provoke me to wrath and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again, have I pur pur purposed in these days to bring good news. That is, I didn't give up on you, says the Lord. I didn't give up on you. I keep preaching to you. I kept directing you. I kept trying to speak through the liturgy of fasting and repentance and faith. And so he says this, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem 
and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath for all of these things I hate, declares the Lord. And then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast, and there's I quoted again, what you heard, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, da, 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 will become seasons of joy, gladness, and cheerful feast. He talks about many people in this new day of the Lord. Many people will come from many nations to seek the Lord and to be healed. Gentiles and tax collectors both. Remember last sermon in Matthew? That's what's at before this passage in Matthew. Don't forget that. Okay, so the question, why aren't you fasting? Christian, are you getting it? Could you answer the question now? Now that you've listened to the question and interpreted it within the context of God's prior revelation to the world through the Old Testament? I hope you can. It makes sense now, even if it sounded very weird before. And to answer it, he gives three illustrations. And he starts with, of course, the illustration of Joel. In verse 15, and Jesus said to them, a question back. Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then there will be a fast. Hold on to that. We're gonna come back to that very last phrase. But here, what is he saying? Fasting is appropriate. Sorrow and mourning is appropriate. It's improper to celebrate until the bridegroom, which we know in the scripture, of course, is the Messiah, walks down that aisle. And the wedding begins. Christ as the bridegroom is to be celebrated as now present. Remember Joel's prophecy. The mourning and the fasting with respect to repentance was illustrated by the need to leave the wedding ceremony and to mourn. Here, Christ now, the Messiah groom, is present. And he's bringing all that was promised by Joel and, and particularly, I'm sorry, Zechariah the grace and the mercy of God to those who would repent. Now, John the Baptist came as the final Old Testament prophet, and he rightfully called for repentance and faith. He rightly followed the institution as had been given by God in the law to fast, to mourn, to sorrow, unto repentance and faith. And God has answered God has answered the prayers of his people and he's come. The great day of the Lord has come, offering forgiveness and grace prior to the coming of his wrath and judgment, which still is coming. He says, no, we don't fast. Fast is improper now, for Christ has come. It's improper, that is, for those who have already participated in the repentance of fasting and prayer, according to the prophecies of John the Baptist. He says the same thing again in verse 16. It's really simple. 
No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. You know, garments were made out of non-synthetic substances back in that day and, and shrinking was very much a big issue. If you've ever tried to tan a skin or whatever, I suspect most of you haven't, I have, but it, it, it shrinks. You have to stretch it out and you have to nail it on the board and you have to make sure it doesn't shrink. That's what he's talking about. And it makes sense. Yeah. Before the Messiah, you needed to fast. But now we got new wine. And that new wine says we need a new garment to put it in. A new liturgy. A liturgy of feasting, which is the liturgy that Christ will give the last night before he is betrayed. When he would accomplish his promise and he would exhaust the wrath of God upon himself for all who would believe in him, for all who would repent. He says it again in, the, in this, this old wineskin again, verse 17, and, and then the unshrunk cloth kind of analogy goes with that. Notice, especially these second two, specifically illustrate the incompatibility of fasting now with Christ present versus rejoicing. That's the key. Fasting was proper for the days when salvation was being sought by the coming of a savior. Now, like Zechariah, let your fasting be turned to joy since the salvation of God has come and the great and terrible day of the Lord has been averted. All three, you see, illustrations signify the same thing, that there are great moments in the history of redemption, epical changing moments, epic changing moments from a redemptive perspective, which radically change all that preceded it. Not to annul it, but to fulfill all that preceded it. Christ came, this is key, crucial in Matthew chapter seven, it says, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, not one jot or tittle will not be kept, Jesus said. Don't ever see the Old Testament as somehow contradictory to the New Testament. See, the New Testament is fulfilling the Old Testament in a manner which then makes some of the Old Testament things obsolete. That's how you understand Old and New Testament. That's your hermeneutics moment there, your interpretation moment. And so we can't, that is, one cannot experience the new era ushered in by Christ that arrived with his coming by remaining in the forms of the old. Both the new and the old would thereby lose their proper purpose and nature. He didn't condemn the law. He merely said that they had, been, they had fulfilled their time. So here's my conclusion about fasting. Fasting was proper for a particular time in the history of redemption. It was not proper for that time when Christ was on earth. John and the Pharisees as ministers within the old covenant economy taught people to long for the coming of the Messiah and to live in a way which was proper to that longing. And when the one whom they had expected finally arrived, the proper response was one of celebration. Now I'm gonna ask the quest second big question. That's, that's about fasting. There's your conclusion. So how does this work out today? What, what's the relevance for, for the question that was raised to Jesus for us today? Should we be fasting today? 
It really turns on verse 15. Let me read it to you again. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Now here's your question we got to ask. Is this a reference to the entire period between the death of Christ and his ultimate return after the ascension ministry and his return? Or is it a reference to the period between the death and the resurrection of Christ? That is the moment between his death and the three days later, his resurrection. Well, there's some important clues. Let me just give it to you quickly. First, there's this verb. Now, in Greek speak, this is the passive aorist. What that means, it, it, you could interpret, is taken away from them, past tense. Kind of gives you a slight that there was a, 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 a time and period where this was true, but it's not necessarily true after that time. But it just, just alone, it would be, okay. So, but just take that for what it's worth. Other New Testament teachings. They suggest that there was sorrow for three days. It's interesting to see how Matthew and others will describe the moment after Christ's death. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and you will mourn as the world around you will rejoice. For you have pain, but your pain, they said, would return to joy. On that day, you will ask nothing of me, that day when the joy comes, and truly, I tell you, I will ask everything of the Father in my name, and he will give it to you. And off he goes. I won't read the whole passage. And there, very clearly, what Jesus is talking about, the day that will return to joy, is he's talking about his ascension ministry. He's talking about the day when the Holy Spirit will be given so that Christ will be present in the present days of those days, the ascension ministry days. See, in God's mind, there's, yeah, I could go through different epochs, different covenantal periods, but in God's mind, history sounds like this. All that, I've, you know, all that happened in the Old Testament leading you to Christ, so I'm not going to go through those epochs. And there were some epoch-changing moments from Adam to Noah to, to Abraham to, to um, Moses to David. Epoch-changing moments, old and new wineskins happening through each one of them to some certain degree. And my mic just did something. Where'd it go? There it is. And... Um, and we come to this moment, and now this time where in and out. There it is. Now it's green. Hope it's working. So, uh, so basically, uh, where was I? Okay, God's perspective of our present age. So now, think incarnation, the birth of Christ, and His incarnational ministry. Think death and that moment when all of the old covenant forms leading to repentance, leading to grace, the whole sacrificial system is fulfilled. Now the new covenant has almost come. It's the death and then the resurrection. If you don't have the resurrection, Christ isn't vindicated, wrath isn't exhausted, and we have no idea where we are with God. Death, resurrection, and then there are the last days, he calls them. And that period is the period between the resurrection, or, or then the resurrection and the ascension. I'm sorry. Death, resurrection, ascension, sending of the Holy Spirit, and the last days, awaiting the return of the Lord. 
clearly in this passage, John, that I'm quoting here, when he talks about you will weep and mourn before and then after these, these days you'll weep no more, he's referring to the last days, the days when the Holy Spirit is sent. You can go back and read it in John 7, 16. He talks about how I came from the Father and I've come into the world again. I'm leaving the world and I'm going to the Father, but I send you. And he goes on and talks about the Holy Spirit. And that's where he talks about, and there will be weeping no more. Interesting. And finally, and this might surprise you, with all this talk about fasting, there is not one mention of fasting in all of the New Covenant epistles. Those very writings that are, we call the foundations of the church of Jesus Christ, the foundational writings of the church of Jesus Christ, not one. That's interesting. The only two times that fasting is mentioned is in the book of Acts. Remember, it's not an epistle, it's a, it's a gospel part two for Luke. And the only two times they're mentioned is when there was the fasting and prayer for the appointment of elders. Now think about what that means. This is where you gotta understand the Bible pretty clearly. To appoint elders, a pastor and an elder, was to, to organize a church. Even as we talk about that today, when we take a mission church and organize it, we do so only when there, God has provided the ministry of the word and sacrament and government, pastors and elders. Ministry of word, sacrament, government. The three marks or instrumental marks of the church. They were fasting and praying because God wasn't in the midst of them. And when he came in the mediated presence of the Holy Spirit, vis-a-vis -vis the church formation, now we've entered into this era that Jesus talked about. Why we see in the book of Ephesians and Philippians and 1 Corinthians and Romans, and I can go through all the books, not one word, not one command to fast. Now, this is blowing your mind because we live in a world that seems all spiritual if you fast. Jesus here is saying, you need to know your epic and it needs to transform your disposition here. You are living in an era where we believe Christ is present. And particularly if you have a high and proper biblical view of the church, which is why we plant churches to do evangelism, not just itinerant preachers. We believe that, that is literally planting the presence of Christ in the city. And we rejoice because Christ is in the city. And the opportunity for repentance and faith is, is, is put out. Think about this. I know some of you are thinking, Pastor, I just can't believe this. This is so different than I hear over the airways sometimes by some of these Bible evangelists, etc. Well, just go to the scripture. I'm sorry. It's there. Christ is presently with him in his ascension ministry by the Holy Spirit mediated through the body of Christ, his church. We are encouraged believers, therefore, to rejoice, not to weep, albeit amidst, now listen, suffering and persecution. I want to slow down briefly here. Again, I hear your cynicism. How can we rejoice in a world like this? Whether it's election chaos, whether it's misogyny, whether it's racism, whether it's wars or rumors of wars and economic uncertainty, it just seems like the world is going to hell in the handbasket. Man, fast. But Christians are called over and over and over again in the epistles. 
to rejoice. Now hold on to me. Don't let your mind start fighting me yet, okay? Give me a shot to give you the scripture. Think about it. In Philippians 4, some people call it the book of rejoicing. Everyone knows if they know Philippians, it's the book of suffering and yet rejoicing. Hmm. I mean, there's this optimistic perspective in spite of suffering all throughout the book of Philippians. All predicated by the beginning of Philippians that speaks about the ascension presence of God. A, a kind of presence that, that puts in perspective our present day suffering in a way that leaves you rejoicing with hope and faith and love. He says this in Philippians, Paul does. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There's that, the Lord's day, the day of the Lord. And he's confident about that day now. He's not afraid of it. He's not over here wringing his hands, fasting and praying and weeping. He is very optimistic about that day, very much looking forward to the day when the Lord comes in and he's not fearing a terrible day of wrath. He's looking to the day when we will get there and we will get there having been completed in our journey with God's help. Philippians 1, what then, he says? What then? With all this circumstantial havoc around Paul at the time. And man, he was dealing with it. <laughs> so was the church. With all this havoc, here's what he says. What then? To the cynicism? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Oh God, please give me and all of us that perspective. I'm praying right now, I really am. I mean, it's like, can we possibly see the greater good that might be how God has destined the church to live in the days of suffering? of chaos, that we might be a kind of witness, that we might show a kind of transcendent love that is not partyism love, that is not against this person or that person who is a love that he talked about in the previous passage that loves the sinners, not condemns the sinners, where people are saved for the day of God's wrath. Whatever wrath is happening in this world, you've gotta hear me say this. It's nothing compared to the wrath that your friend or your neighbor or the sexist or the racist or the, and we just go right down the line, the day that they will face without Jesus Christ. Nothing's compared. And so from that perspective, Paul rejoices. Rejoicing in the confidence he has in the power of God to bring all this to fruition where the most will be saved. He goes on to say in Philippians 4, rejoice therefore in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It's a reasonable thing, he says, to, be, uh, to rejoice for the Lord, he says, is at hand. Did you hear that? The Lord is at hand. Now put your mind around that. If Paul can say it, under one of the most tyrannical regimes that ever lived on the face of this earth, while he's sitting in prison, awaiting possible death, you can too. I can too. The Lord is at hand. Therefore, do not be anxious about any of it, he says. First Peter says the same stuff. For a while you will suffer, he says, but 
in this, in this suffering, you will rejoice. Though now for a little while it is necessary for you have been grieved by various trials. Though you have seen him, and here's the key, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Suffering, even, according to Romans 5, has salvific value when accompanied by the witness of a Christian who suffers without exasperation, but rejoicing. Because their world, their perspective, their emotions, their ethics are now the product of a new perspective, a new way of understanding history where this history is domesticated under the lordship of God. How then we do relate to fasting. I want to make it clear, fasting and mourning as those who mourn and lament ought not to characterize our new covenant experience. If we mean by that the mourning and the, and the sadness of those who await a Messiah. We have our Messiah and it's not going to happen on November 2nd. We've got our Messiah. Whatever happens and whoever candidate you have, not happening to your Messiah. We have been set free from the burden of sin and its consequences. We have been given the deposit of the Holy Spirit, sealing us in the legacy of blessing and not curse. Can you fast today? Well, yes, but with qualifications. No, you can't fast as it was prescribed under the old covenant as a liturgy of repentance and faith unless you're an unbeliever. And if you're an unbeliever today, I would speak to you and say fast, pray. Lament, discover that sin that broke the world and the universe that lives within you. It's the same sin which lives in all of our hearts that's bringing all this mess that you grieve. Therefore, fast and grieve and lament our sin that's in our hearts. Ask God to forgive you and me and bring us to that absolution that absolves us from the guilt and sets us free to rejoice in the certain hope of our salvation when he comes again. In other words, you don't fast as a religious duty. It's not done as if our salvation is somehow related to it. It is done more for personal help and prayer, which is characterized by mourning. So yes, you can fast, but it, it's not the fast of the old covenant preceding Christ. And it's not prescribed anywhere in the new covenant for you to do. So if you don't fast, you're not less spiritual. But if you find fasting as a way that you can, can help focus on whatever area of, of an intermittent repentance that you need in your life, then do it. But it's not the kind that was prescribed under the old covenant. That's all I'm saying. It may be a practical help for you. But it's not as though God hears this fast and says, oh, okay, he fasted, he didn't, I will forgive, I won't forgive. It's just not the way it is. It is not done as thinking that God is more inclined to act even. 
Do it as a help. Do it as a, if it's something you want to do. And I'm not, it's not that someone, it's not, it's not prescribed that you don't fast. It's just not prescribed that you do fast. That's the way I'm putting it to you. And if you do fast, don't do it as if your salvation depends on it. Not unless you're an unbeliever. And if you're a believer, and if the liturgy of fasting brings you to the, your knees in a way of repentance and faith and fast, mourn to be saved. The most significantly though, and here's where I wanna end the sermon, the meaning of Christ and our response to his coming, the coming of Christ you see is what's really at, 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 at focus here. This whole passage is just secondarily about fasting. This is all about the meaning of Christ and his coming into our world and how we as Christians ought to be living in the world. Before Christ, we are waiting the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has come for you, Christian. It has been exhausted and satisfied in Jesus Christ. It's come, past tense. That passive orus is there for you. The day of the Lord relative to God's judgment on the world has already come for the Christian. I won't go into this, it'd take me on down a rabbit trail, but this is one of the arguments of the reformers, if you understand the 16th century, 15th, 16th, 17th century reformation against the mass. The idea that the mass was, was yet again sacrifice of Christ and the reformers were adamant about it. There's only once and once and for all is there a sacrifice. For the day of the Lord is not coming every day we do the Lord's Supper today as the mass would, would declare it to be. And that's what their argument was all about, defending passages like this, where Christ in the day of the Lord has been, past tense, satisfied. So then what do we say about how we to live life today? Again, I hear the resistance loud and clear coming from your soul. But pastor, what do you say? And to, to rejoice is in direct conflict almost with every factual circumstance that is in my right in my life right now. And let me tell you right now, I don't think Paul or Christ or any of the apostles were giving you a Pollyanna kind of rejoice exhortation. It's not going on here. We acknowledge, we face the facts, the reality. There is a global pandemic. There is political upheaval and election chaos. There is racism. There is misogyny. There is economic uncertainty. There is fighting and looting on the streets. There's worldwide wars and rumor of wars. We are not putting our heads in the sand and saying, oh, that's all a hoax, or oh, that's all a conspiracy theory, or oh, that's all the other side's spin. And no, we, we're not a postmodern in things just because you say something, it's true. We're going to try to find the facts. That's all there. So I don't want you to hear this in this hyper-politicized age as the pastor playing politics. No, I want you to hear the message of Jesus here. The person filled with the Spirit, reading the Holy Scriptures today, will see things very differently with the eyes of faith than they will with the eyes of my temporal flesh. By sight, according to the flesh, we see all that I just listed. It's all true to some degree. By faith, well, I think of the Psalm where God laughs, not laughs at the chaos, but all of the, of the craziness Lord, God is Lord. The Lordship of Christ and the stability of the church is guaranteed, not by any relation to the institutions or circumstances of this world, but is related to Christ 
who ordains all things that come to pass for the sake of continuing and preserving his saving purpose on earth. That's how we understand what's going on. I want to give you an amazing observation in closing. Gerald Sitzer's resilient faith, how the early Christians third way changed the world. That's his book. He talks about Christianity from the first century to the rise of Christendom in around the fourth and fifth century. What happened between those years? I'm going to read this slowly just and make comment, but this is really powerful stuff. And I want you to hear this. First of all, he says this, Christians in that time believed in the reality of another and greater kingdom over which God ruled. Stop. Do you believe that? Do you believe that all these kingdoms of this world and all the fights about these kingdoms of the world are under the lordship of a greater and more powerful kingdom? Whereas all these circumstances are in submission to that power for a purpose that transcends the purposes of all those kingdoms. Christians believed in the reality of another and greater kingdom over which God ruled. The third way, he goes on to explain, was like a resistance movement, both subversive and peaceful, bearing witness to the coming of that kingdom. But rather than following a strategy of violent revolution, as say the zealots did, Christians immersed themselves in the culture as agents of that kingdom. Christians aspired to follow another way, Jesus's way. They prayed for the emperor, but refused to worship him. They didn't put their hope in him or their confidence in their kingdoms. Stop. Let that sink in. You see, to worship something is to put your hope in it. To act as if that person or kingdom is your salvation and the salvation of the world. The real fact of the matter is, if you understand facts from God's perspective, is it's not. Now I'm going to read on. It's safe to say, he said, that Christians numbered roughly 5,000 people in the year A.D. 40. Five and 5 million by the year 300. 5,000 to 5 million in a couple of millennium. Worshiping in some 65,000 houses by 300 AD, churches of varying sizes. This is before Christendom. This is before it had any political backing. In fact, this is during the time when they were being persecuted and marginalized economically and everything else. They grew fast as ever before. Such an impressive growth, he says, at such a rate would seem to require some level of state support and cultural privilege, right? That's what we think in all our messianism today about the kingdoms of this world. And yet, case study, Christians enjoyed few of the benefits that Christians take for granted today, at least in the West. They did not worship in official church buildings, as we would understand them today. They didn't send their children to Christian schools or Sunday schools. They didn't enjoy the benefits of cultural power and visibility or flex their Christian political muscles. The Christian movement embodied a new and different way of knowing God. 
In fact, it developed a process of formation to move people slowly and deliberately from participation in the Greco-Roman religions and world to the Judeo-Christian religions and world. How did early Christians start and sustain a movement over such a long period of time, some 250 years, under these conditions, you ask? Before Christendom began to emerge, how did the church maintain a steady rate of growth under such difficult circumstances? How did Christian leaders make disciples without the religious benefits and privileges we take for granted today, such as the massive availability of Christian literature, the use of technology to spread the message and to nurture faith, the influence of high-profile Christian leaders and the dominance of large-scale Christian institutions like megachurches and big nonprofits. How did they do this without all of that? How did the minority movement influence the larger culture so powerfully, even though the vast majority of people living in the Roman Empire did not assume Christianity was the one true religion? Christian ethics were the best way to live is the answer. And Christian institutions were worthy of special privilege. Christian that's a question mark. They didn't have that. Christians back then had every reason, according to our messianism of this day, every reason to fail. But they didn't. They succeeded. How? They formed churches. Separate polis. Separate cities within a greater temporal city. The city of God. And they remained faithful to those churches as their alternative politic. The way of life that was consistent with their different polis became their way of life within and under the polises of this world. Your take home, Christian? Well, to put it into this week, regardless of whether or not your candidate wins, <laughs> does it really matter that much if we see history as God sees it. God is still the ascended Lord on November 4th. Don't you forget it. Rejoice. What might appear to be epic changing isn't epic changing. Not from the perspective of redemptive history. The worst case scenario is that we would return to the first through fourth centuries pre-Christendom and back to an age wherein our identity and belonging is in the Christian polis, the church, and not in Caesar's polis, the state. The reality would be then that our hope and our faith and our love would be eternal. Would be eternal. And therefore we can get on with loving our neighbor, with praying for our emperor, for acting the Christian in a world that is frenzied and chaotic. We don't know what God is doing in a micro way, but you know, Christian, what he's doing in a macro way. We have to go to start living like, we have to start living like it. Living like we really believe the resurrection and the ascension. Like we really believe the alternative worldview of the Christian faith that will at once command us to love and pray and respect the polices of this world even as we don't participate in the same ethical way of doing politics. This week, let us all take a big, organically united breath. The same benedictions that were placed over the church 2,000 years ago, they're the same benedictions pronounced over you today. A certain decree of God
benedictions like, now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory and glory forever and ever. Amen. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians, and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. May our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Thessalonians, himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and all ways. The Lord be with you all. A decree.